In this class, we're going to begin our discussion of um, ileostomy patient management. We're going to focus on primary education. In a later class, we'll discuss complication prevention. So here we're going to talk about the normal function, normal output from an ileostomy, what to expect, what's normal, and what is critical basic education for the patient with an ileostomy. So let's talk about normal function. Now, when you have a patient with an ileostomy, you have either removed the colon and rectum or bypassed the colon and rectum. And remember that the colon is responsible for converting liquid stool to solid stool. So there's going to be a major impact in terms of output and function. So the first thing you'll notice is that an ileus resolves pretty quickly with an ileostomy. It turns out that the small bowel regains function first. So typically, the order in which um, peristaltic activity is regained, first you get function back in the small bowel, typically then the colon, and the stomach typically paralyzes or parallels the colon. So that means that the ileostomy patient usually has output within 24 to 48 hours. Many of our patients are asked to chew gum postoperatively because when you chew gum, it simulates eating. It makes the body think you're eating, and eating triggers peristalsis in the small bowel. So a lot of your patients will be on a gum chewing protocol, and the purpose of that protocol is to stimulate early return of peristaltic function, rapid resolution of ileus. Now, initial output is typically low volume, viscous. It's very mucoid. It's kind of dark green. It looks almost bilious but with a mucoid consistency. And then most patients go through a high output adaptation phase that takes typically several weeks to resolve. So what's going on here? Well, remember the colon is gone and it takes several weeks for the small bowel to recognize that, hey, Charlie, the colon hasn't shown up for work in days. Maybe I better start doing part of his workload. So over the first few weeks postoperatively, the body begins to realize that the colon is gone or bypassed, and the small bowel begins to compensate for that loss by increasing fluid absorption within the small bowel but that takes several weeks. And during that initial adaptation phase, it's very common to have output volumes that range from one to two liters. Now, obviously, if you're losing two liters a day, as opposed to the 200 milliliters a day that you typically excrete through the colon, that is gonna have a major impact on fluid and electrolyte balance. So during this adaptation phase, it's critical for us to monitor output. It's critical for us to assure 
adequate replacement of lost fluid. So in addition to assuring that adults get the two liters of fluid they need at baseline just for normal hydration needs, now we need to be sure that the patient's getting another one to one and a half liters of fluid to replace the amount that's being lost through the ileostomy. In the hospital, really not a problem because patients are receiving IV fluids. And it's very common to see an order to replace ileostomy output at the rate of one milliliter of IV fluids for every two milliliters of ileostomy output. So if you had one liter of output on my shift, then I'm going to alert the next shift to replace 500 in addition to your baseline fluid intake. So in the hospital, pretty easy for us to keep patients on track in terms of fluid and electrolyte balance. But that means that before that patient goes home, we need to assure that the volume of output has diminished to a level where that patient can keep up with oral intake. Or we need to make sure that the patient is being followed by home health and that we send the patient home with a PICC line if necessary so that the home health agency can provide IV fluid replacement when needed. Now long term, most individuals put out between 500 and 1100 milliliters a day. 1200 milliliters is considered by most clinicians to be the upper limits of normal. And most clinicians will tell patients, if you're putting out more than 1200 milliliters a day, you need to let us know because we have to make sure we're providing adequate fluid replacement. So to summarize, most patients go through a high output adaptation phase where they're draining up to or more than two liters a day. Typically that resolves within three to four weeks <clears throat> until output comes down to between 500 and 1100 a day. We've got to assure adequate fluid replacement either through oral intake or through a combination of oral and IV intake. Now, moving on to self-care, um, pouch selection. Patients with ileostomies are going to be emptying their pouch multiple times a day. They will need a drainable pouch. Closed-in pouches are not typically used for ileostomy patient management. Typically, the only time we would recommend a closed-in pouch is if we had a patient who had some kind of limitation that meant they could not empty a pouch. Maybe they're doing ostomy care one-handed. And in that case, they would have to have a two-piece system so that they could snap one pouch off, snap another one on, because it would never be appropriate to remove a pouch multiple times a day, you would get into skin damage. Now, one thing we should be thinking about is what about a high output pouch? So a high output pouch has 
higher volume capacity and also is much easier to empty because of the spout. Furthermore, you can connect a high output pouch to a bedside drainage bag, which makes management much easier for a patient who's having high volume liquid drainage. So to put all that together, if a patient's in the adaptation phase with very high volume output, we should be thinking about a high output pouch Routinely, once output comes down to 500 to 1100 a day, we should have that patient in a drainable pouch unless there is some extenuating circumstance that mandates use of a closed-in pouch. Pouch emptying, again, when the pouch is one-third to one-half full, Typically, patients will empty at least four times a day. In general, when patients empty the pouch, they're emptying about 200 to 240 milliliters. So if you think, okay, average output is somewhere between 500 and a liter, then they're going to be emptying three to four times a day. What about pouch and room deodorants? Well, ileostomy patients have variable degrees of odor. There are some who do not feel the need for use of deodorants, but the vast majority do prefer to use deodorants. One reason may be that ileostomy patients are going to have to empty their pouch in the work setting. They're going to have to empty their pouch in social settings because of the volume of output and the frequency with which they have to empty, they're going to be very sensitive to odor in settings other than home. So we definitely want to talk to them about odor management and the option to use pouch deodorants as well as room deodorants. What about pouch change procedure? Well, they're going to use standard approach to pouch removal, push-pull, use of an adhesive releaser, they're going to learn to clean their skin just with warm water and a soft cloth. They're going to learn to measure their stoma and cut the pouch or the barrier wafer out to match stoma size. But one thing that is different with an ileostomy patient, remember they have high volume liquid enzymatic output. So we routinely recommend use of a barrier ring or barrier paste right around the cut edge of the barrier or right around the stoma to caulk, to prevent undermining, to provide better wear time. We have to teach the patient that the output from their ileostomy is highly enzymatic. We tell them it contains a lot of chemicals that the body uses to digest your food. Those chemicals can be very, very damaging to your skin. So it's critically important that we protect all of your skin from any contact with the output. We don't want anything touching your skin. Odor control, as we've said, even though the patient with an ileostomy typically has less odor than the patient with the colostomy, many times they're more sensitive because 
These are young individuals. They're going back to work. They're resuming social activities. They're resuming sexual activity. Odor control is of concern. So we want to, again, enforce the importance of cleaning the spout thoroughly. We want to explain that the pouch is odor-proof, that the pore size in the pouch material is smaller than the fecal odor molecule. So as long as their pouch is intact, as long as the spout is clean and closed, they will have no odor. Once again, we discourage rinsing of the pouch. It's not necessary, takes more time, makes the emptying procedure a lot more complex, and increases the risk of undermining and loss of seal. We have talked about pouch deodorants in the past. Again, you wanna provide ileostomy patients with this same information. There are commercial deodorants available from the ostomy suppliers. They reduce odor when the pouch is emptied. You add the deodorant when the pouch is initially applied. You re-add deodorant every time you empty. Poopery can be used in the toilet to reduce odor. Oral breath mints can be used. A lot of people use those and you're gonna want some kind of room spray before you empty. Oral products are used probably more by ileostomy patients than by colostomy patients. So in our previous discussion, we mentioned um, Darafil, chlorophylline copper complex, 100 milligrams once or twice a day, contraindicated for children under 12, less commonly used by people with an ileostomy because it tends to make the stool more liquid and they already have liquid stool. So ileostomy patients are much more likely to use bismuth subgallate, which is Devrom or Devco. One to two tablets chewed three to four times a day. Very effective in minimizing odor, also thickens the stool, reduces gas, changes stool color to kind of a dark green-black. There are contraindications, children, renal failure, unless they're on dialysis because bismuth subgallate is cleared by the kidneys. We have to be aware that it could interfere with absorption of anticoagulants and antibiotics. But what patients will tell you and what you will find is once a patient's been on this for three to four days, the intensity of the odor goes way, way down. I've had patients who were much more concerned when they ran out of bismuth subgallate than they were when they ran out of their anticoagulant or their antihypertensive or their cardiac meds because it made such a difference to quality of life. So be aware of that. Share that information with your patients. It's not a prescription, it's over the counter. Gas control. Gas control is a major concern for most people with an ileostomy, actually for almost anyone with a fecal diversion. Now, most people with an ileostomy have less gas 
than patients with colostomies because they have lower bacterial counts. But that doesn't mean they're not worried about gas. Remember, these people are in their teens, 20s, 30s most of the time. Are they going to be worried about gas? Yes. So we want to provide them with all of the critical information. We want to explain to them that high volume gas is common during the early post-op period because the bowel prep cleared all the stool out of the bowel, surgery added air to the bowel, and we have to get all that air out. Postoperatively, gas is extremely noisy because you have a mix of air and liquid, and it's very much like air in your pipes. So if you've ever gotten air in your pipes, you know you turn on the tap, and it's like, oh my goodness. That's what it's like early post-op, especially for someone with an ileostomy, because of that mixture of gas and liquid. But once we clear the bowel out, we get all that gas out, and now it's full of mushy stool, the volume of gas goes way down. So we just want to reassure them this is a short-term problem. Then they're gonna wanna say, they're going to ask you, well, am I going to have gas after this? Yes, everyone has gas. How am I gonna manage that? Well, I'm gonna encourage you to keep a chart where you write down what you eat and drink. You write down how much gas you have, whether you have diarrhea or your stool's pretty thick and mushy. I want you to figure out which foods cause you more gas. And I want you to also pay attention to your, what we call lag time. After you eat that food, how long does it take before you have gas? You need to know that. Then you can pick and choose when to eat those foods. Most people will tell you I'm very careful with what I eat at lunch because during the evening I'm usually around other people and I don't want to have a lot of gas. But if it's the weekend and I'm hanging out with my family, then I'm going to kind of eat what I want to and just turn up the volume on the TV. You want to make sure that you teach the muffling technique to your patient with an ileostomy. Every one of them are going to find themselves in situations where they have gas. They can feel it rumbling around. They need to know how to muffle, arm or hand over the stomach. They want their canned disclaimer so they know how to manage an embarrassing situation. If you know what you're going to do, you know what you're going to say. It's much less stressful than if you're worried all the time and you don't know what you're going to do if that happens. Can they use Beno and Cymethicone? Yes, just like we said with a colostomy patient. It is fine to take Beno with gas-forming vegetables to reduce gas formation at the outset. Also, Cymethicone can help because it breaks up gas bubbles into little bitty bubbles that are reabsorbed into the uh, bowel. We talked about flatus filters and vents, so I'm hoping you remember the difference between a filter and a vent. 
A filter gradually releases gas from the pouch but forces it through charcoal so that it is filtered before it's vented. So it's deodorized before it's released into the environment. So most of your fecal pouches do come with flatus filters. Now, flatus filters are a work in progress. You'll have issues, patients will tell you the, that filter, it works really well for a couple of days and then it pretty much stops working and my pouch poofs up. Yes, that's a common problem. Again, companies are working to improve the effectiveness of flatus filters. What about vents? Vents provide rapid release of gas. They rapidly decompress a pouch. Vents are add-on structures, so you apply it, you poke holes in the pouch, you apply the vent, and then if your pouch fills with gas, you just open the vent and it lets all the gas out. But it lets all the odor out too, so you have to be in a safe place to do that. And finally, remember that if this patient is wearing a two-piece system, they have the option to burp the pouch, to walk away from other people, lift the pouch away from the wafer, allow the gas out. What about diet? That's a huge concern. Remember that a lot of these people are very young. So can I eat normally? Can I go out with my friends? Can I eat what my friends are eating? And basically the answer is yes. But there are restrictions for the first six to eight weeks postoperatively. And these restrictions should be maintained until the swelling is resolved, till all the stomal edema goes away. Now, how do you know that all the stomal edema has resolved? You know that because you have the patient measuring the stoma at each pouch change. Once the stoma remains the same size for two weeks, you can be pretty confident that all the swelling in the bowel wall has resolved. Now, why do ileostomy patients have these restrictions when colostomy patients do not? Remember the difference in the diameter of the wall of the small intestine compared to the large intestine, the colon. So the ileum is typically one inch in diameter. That's not very big. The colon is two to two and a half inches in diameter, more than twice the size. You start out, you have a one inch lumen. Then you think about the fact that immediately postoperatively you have edema that further narrows the lumen. When you have a narrow channel, if the patient eats a large amount of insoluble fiber, it could create a blockage. It could form a bolus of undigested food that could get stuck just proximal to the stoma. At the point where they turn the bowel to bring the bowel through the fascia muscle layer, when they bring the bowel through the fascia muscle layer, it's very common to get a little bit of narrowing right at that point. And you can actually see that in the illustration on the bottom. So you start out, you have narrow lumen to begin with. You have postoperative edema 
further reducing the lumen of the bowel. And then you have that little area of additional narrowing where they turn the bowel to bring it through the fascia muscle layer. So this patient has to be careful. They do not want to end up with a blockage. And here are their guidelines for preventing a blockage. First of all, we give them a list of foods high in insoluble fiber, and we tell them don't eat these foods for the first six to eight weeks. Don't eat these foods until the stoma size remains the same for two weeks. At that point, the edema has resolved and you're pretty much at maximum lumen. Once you get to that point, you can start adding foods that are high in insoluble fiber, but you want to add them one at a time in small amounts and you want them to chew well. So if I've been craving these foods, I shouldn't eat them all at once. I shouldn't go to a cookout and say, oh, coleslaw, man, have I missed coleslaw. Yeah, I'll have a big serving of that. And baked beans, yes, 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 absolutely give me that. And is that, are those marinated mushrooms? Mm, I love marinated mushrooms, and I want coconut pie for dessert. No, you're going to be in the emergency room because you've just added all this fiber all at once. What you want to do is say, I have really, really missed coleslaw. So I'm going to take a small amount, maybe a quarter cup, a third of a cup. I'm going to chew it really well. I'm going to pay attention to see if I have any evidence that I didn't tolerate this well. What would my signs of intolerance be? Well, if I'm cramping, if I'm having diarrhea, then it tells me I didn't manage that very well and I need to put it on the do not eat list for a few more weeks. But let's say I ate a quarter cup, a third of a cup, I did really well. It's like, okay, well that's a food I can tolerate as long as I chew it well and drink plenty of fluids. Now I'm ready to move to another food to test it out. So here are some of your foods that are high in insoluble fiber. And as I tell patients all the time, it's foods that you can look at and you can say, oh, that's gonna be hard to digest. So what about raw veggies or veggies that are cri cooked crisp tender? What about raw broccoli, raw cabbage, raw carrots, raw celery? That's gonna be hard to digest. You have to wait on those. What about nuts and large seeds like sunflower seeds? Yeah, those are very hard to digest. Dried fruits, trail mix, granola, anything with peels. So yes, you can eat an apple, but you've got to peel it first. You can eat a potato, but not the peel. Anything with membranes like oranges and grapefruit. And then mushrooms, because they're very fibrous, they really do not break down. What you do with your teeth is the only thing that happens. Olives, coconut, corn. All of those foods we know are hard to digest. We need to wait to add them back to our diet. So in summary, you can have a temporary ileostomy. You can have a permanent ileostomy. The things that we need to teach our patients and we need to emphasize is the importance of peristomal skin protection 
because the output is enzymatic. The importance of gas and odor control and specific strategies because individuals with ileostomy will need to empty their pouch wherever they go. The critical importance of hydration maintenance because their output is always going to put them on the edge of dehydration. And finally, dietary modifications to prevent food blockage. And we'll talk about complications in a later class. Thank you.